This is The Blacklist Podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of The Blacklist, as always, joined by... Kate Hagen, director of community at The Blacklist. So today we're going to talk about Marvel and DC. That is the clickbait, but we've got a great conversation with a DC director, Birds of Prey director, Kathy Yan. Kate, this is a fun one. It's so fun. If you guys have not seen Birds of Prey yet, you got to do it. We're going to talk to Kathy about her approach to directing the beautiful action sequences in Birds of Prey, her practical approach to VFX and combat. We're also going to dig into Kathy's past as a journalist and how that has shaped her filmmaking, as well as Franklin mentioned her feelings on the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well as DC. And maybe we're even going to tease some talk of a Birds of Prey sequel. Without further ado, Kate Hagen, Franklin Leonard, and Kathy Yon. So, Kathy, we, we actually start all of these conversations in the exact same way, you know, for continuity's sake. What was the first movie you saw in a movie theater? Oh, my gosh. Gosh, I don't even remember. Hmm. Or ask another way, what is, what, is your <laughs> early, what is your earliest memory in a movie theater? Mm, okay. Like, like, do you have a, is there one that you go back to and you're like, I, it might not have been the first time, but that's the one I remember. Yeah, it's, I, I do, actually, and it's, it's pretty dark. Uh, I remember my dad was a big cinephile, and so he would take us, he would drive us out of the way to, like, the closest um, you know, art house cinema. And um, the early 90s was really great for Chinese art house cinema. And so one of my earliest memories is watching Farewell, My Concubine with my parents. Um, And specifically the last scene, which is it, it, there's a beheading in it, but like it, you know, it's done artfully, but I still remember that because I remember thinking to myself, like, is this what I think it is? You know, as a kid, you're like, what's going on? So, um, that is probably one of my earliest cinematic memories. <laughs> kind of the flip of that question is, do you remember then the movie that made you fall in love with movies? I think, honestly, it's got to be, it might be tied up in one for me. I think that that early cinematic memory of Farewell, My Concubine, but also watching those movies. And I remember, again, my father being quite a cinephile himself. Like, I think it was a different movie, but of the same ilk. It was um, uh, Raise the Red Lantern. And there was a, and in that movie, the, the husband is never really seen. He's only a voice. And I remember my father like kind of whispering to me and he's like, do you see why he never shows the husband? It does like, he was kind of like trying to explain directing to me. And I couldn't have been, you know, much older than the Pharaoh, my con, my concubine incident, but I still remember those because I think it just, it showed what, movies could be and the kind of thought process behind them in a really interesting way. And also, I think it was really nice as a Chinese American too to see such great cinema made by people that look like me. I think that really was helpful as well. Wait, so how how old were you for the Farewell My Concubine thing? Oh gosh, I think it was 90. So like I was probably like seven or eight, six or seven, something like that. Um, I don't remember exactly. I think it was 1991. I would have to check the exact dates, but um, yeah. And do you know where your father's love of film came from? Like it's interesting. Like I, mm-hmm. I my dad's the same way, and mm-hmm. it, it just occurred to me that I I don't know where his love of cinema came from, but he definitely was intent 
on sharing it with me. And I think, Kate, you're probably in a similar situation, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's interesting. I've definitely had those conversations with family members. Like, my Meemaw was my big movie person, and she loved movies because her and her mom used to go to the all-day matinees during the Great Depression. It was, like, the one sort of concession they gave themselves was to go to the movies. So, yeah. But, like, Kathy, do you know where your dads came from? Yeah, he has a really interesting story about that. So both my parents came from, you know, communist China, and there wasn't many movies at all, like, you know, there was, they basically grew up during the Cultural Revolution, so there was almost nothing. And then once China started opening up again, it would be all these like old Soviet, like, and um, I guess what were appropriately propagandist movies that were starting to come out in the 70s and 80s. And then there was just this like remarkable movement of good cinema, really, in the early 90s that came out of China. And by that time, they were immigrants in America. And so I think there was this pride in a way of like China opening up. And um, my dad was not, was pretty much the same age as like Jaimo, Chen Kaige, like those guys from the fourth generation. And then the final thing was, I think he was telling me this funny story where he was a grad student at the time and he didn't have a, a lot of money. And so he um, participated in this like, in this film program for, um, I think, it, yeah, it was for like, you know, the national, like the archives where he had to just, he was paid to watch movies and write about them. Oh, <laughs> so wow. Sp- yeah. So he spent a whole summer writing or watching, I think, a hundred movies. And then he got to pick one of the movies to write about. And so the one movie, and this is even earlier than, um, this is like late 80s now, so the movie that he wrote about was Yellow Earth, which was Chen Kaigo's first film. Right. And, and he claims that he is one of the first, like, Western critics of the movie. <laughs> That's incredible. But, but film is not his career now, right? No, like, no, it's not. Yeah, no. But I think through, I mean, if you watch a hundred movies and you have any interest in it, you know, yeah. you just, like, um, like, that's just an immense and amazing, um, Film education, I mean, I wish I had the time to do that. And apparently he was paid to do it. So it kind of was just this funny opportunity that that popped up and and he started loving it from there. And then my mom sort of has a different streak where she and I would go and like watch all the like when you used to have those physical theaters that did the like late runs, right? What were right. they called again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second um, run. For like three dollars. Second run yeah, theaters. Like $3, yeah. $3, three dollar the do- like three dollar cinema. Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember yep. it as well. Yeah. So we were really into that. That's like how we would spend the weekend and we'd sort of like, you know, actually sometimes we would we would um be super cheap and like do a double feature and sneak into the second second theater. So yep. um I I kinda grew up with like a a love of cinema more like artistically from my dad's side and then just of you know big American blockbusters on my mother's side. Do you remember the first time you saw yourself on screen where like just you saw a character and said oh that's that's me? Mm, Wow that's interesting I think not like me me but I definitely think I, there was some profound impact and confidence maybe in growing up with such good Chinese cinema. You know, like there was that big burst of it coming out of mainland China, but also like um, out of Hong Kong, out of Taiwan. And so that gave at least somehow this like sense that cinema was mine or like what, you know, was, 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 was something that I could achieve or was a little bit more recognizable. And then when there hadn't been for the last 10, almost 20 years, you sort of realize the vacuum of it, right? That like, then then it kind of fell down a little bit and there wasn't as much 
in terms of Asian representation or specifically Chinese representation in cinema. But I think I just, I got pretty lucky and and some of my earliest memories just happened to have people on on them (laughs) that spoke my language and looked like me, yeah. But you didn't start your career as a filmmaker. You were a journalist, right? Yeah, that's right. So walk us through the like, errant path down to be a journalist and then sort of the return home to like your filmmaking roots? Sure. Well, I, you know, I always wanted to, I I still believe very much that truth is stranger than fiction. And I, I don't believe that journalism has left me really. I think I've just, I think it's an attitude and a perspective. And I very much feel like I just bring journalism into filmmaking in a way, but I, I've always loved it. I just, I think, again, I just, kind of grew up in an era where, you know, cared about the news and was reading the news all the time. And it felt a little bit more approachable coming out of college for me and just a more academic setting that I was in. And so I interned at a bunch of newspapers. And then when I graduated college, I started working for the Wall Street Journal. And that was really interesting. And then the Wall Street Journal actually sent me to Hong Kong, where I went to high school. And we, I helped start a short-lived Hong Kong section of the paper there, reported out of China as well. And then all the meanwhile, I think I just always, I, I loved movies. And obviously, I grew up loving movies. I was also an only child. So I would often just kind of like hang out by myself or play by myself or watch the same movies over again and, you know, make stories and shoot things with a little video camera and whatnot. And that all finally came to a point, I think, actually, when I started covering, this was back in New York, but I was covering arts and entertainment for the Wall Street Journal. And I actually would interview directors and producers and and cover film. And through that, I kept being like, oh man, I think I kind of want to do this. And then and then NYU started a program. It was a dual degree program where you can get an MBA as well as as well as an MFA at Tisch Grad Film School, and that felt like something it was kind of like tiptoeing my way in if you if you will. Like I dipped my toes in by saying like, well, I'm also getting an MBA, so calm down parents, <laughs> you right. know, and it made right. me feel better about a sort of career transition. And so I applied to that and the rest is history from there, I guess. What are the best lessons you took from your time as a journalist to becoming a director? A lot. I think journalism is really good training in terms of being able to spot a story and, and having an interesting take and communicating it in a way that feels really relevant and interesting to to an audience and knowing who your audience is in a way. So so much of journalism is like, it's like pitching a story, right? Like this story is interesting and the way that I'm pitching the story makes my editor be interested in it as well, which allows me to write the story. So I think that's just incredibly good training. And I feel like when I'm looking at what projects I want to do as a filmmaker too, I'm constantly asking myself, like, why is this relevant? Why is this interesting? What does this say about the world? What's the kind of conversation that I want to have because of this film or this TV show or this piece of content? And what is another way in too that is a little bit more original or interesting or provocative or any of those things? So I feel like I'm constantly using my journalism skills in a way. Yeah, I feel like it's, you know, there are actually, when you dig in, there are a lot of filmmakers who are formerly 
journalists. I feel David Simon is the sort of hallmark Mm. example that people use. But it does feel like you sort of take a lot of those lessons from the world of journalism, like you were saying, truth being stranger than fiction. And it then becomes easier to sort of apply those through a narrative lens. But pivoting back to the questionnaire a little bit, what is your ideal movie watching setup? And we're going to ask about in a movie theater and at home. What snacks are you eating? Are you by yourself? Where are you sitting? (laughs) I love a big movie theater like you know I just I love like the whole IMAX experience and I want it to be completely filled to the brim and I want people laughing and I want people engaging with the movie I just I want the best sound um so from that side like if if we're gonna do the movie theater experience I want like the biggest boldest most badass like version of it and then at home, like I, I'll pop some, you know, microwavable popcorn and try to simulate that experience as much as possible. But that said, there's also another experience that I have grown to really love, especially in quarantine. <laughs> this could just be me, but like sitting in my bed with my laptop, like up to, you know, my torso experience, <laughs> which is so intimate and interesting. I love watching like yeah. long form dramatic television that way. It just, you get so close to the characters um so i i love it all i have to say but there's nothing like i think a really like boisterous loud happy theater i think we're all making a lot of uh unique cinema experiences in our homes right now learning all things about ourselves but i'm so with you that like if you can see it with a big audience you might as well see it with a big audience Kind of in that same vein, you know, as we think about audience and movies that everybody has sort of seen, are there any films in the sort of greater canon that you have just refused to watch for whatever reason, you know, put off those movies that everybody has seen uh, and you're just like, I'm not going to watch that one. Yeah, uh, this is probably going to be a little bit controversial to say, but I have not watched most of the Marvel movies. Yeah. Uh, Wow. (laughs) Shots fired. Shots fired. Is there is there is there a reason for that? Or is it just like it's it's just been a blind spot? I mean, you've been pretty busy for the last decade so it, it would be excusable <laughs> if it was a time issue but, but where does that come from it, it's it's partially that i think you know and i'm not just saying this because i made a movie in, in gotham in the dc world but like i grew up watching the batman movies and so i am not definitely not like go dc like fuck marvel i mean yeah. let's say fuck <laughs> but like yeah you give me marvel okay or anything like that but i think there was just i like the darker aspects of Gotham and the DC world a little bit more. And then I felt like Marvel movies started to become like TV shows, right? And then so it's like if at a certain point, if you haven't watched all of them, you can't really get dropped into one. And so I felt like I just blinked, woke up, and then one day they were on, you know, like Captain America Winter Soldier. And I'm like, wait, what were the eight other movies I should have watched to understand like half of the jokes? And so it just became something... Much like I think like how a lot of people feel about without as much time commitment, but like The Wire. It's like, right. well, I got to oh, start yeah, from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you know, I mean, I've said this to friends. You have to start from the beginning and you have to give it at least four episodes <laughs> before you draw any conclusions. And then you're already four hours in, which is a big commitment for a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. So that became part of it. And then frankly... 
when I actually started making birds, I think uh, there was a part of me that was also like, I want to deliberately draw inspiration from places that weren't the obvious. And even if it just like rubbed off on me, like in a way that I was not conscious of, I just didn't want to necessarily get those influences. I wanted to be looking towards other influences. I think it really shows in, in Birds of Prey, which is very different than many comic book films that are being released currently. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. But we have to back up before Birds of Prey and take it back to your first feature, Dead Pigs, which debuted at Sundance. And you've been able to sort of make the transition that a lot of filmmakers Mm -hmm. are sort of dreaming of, especially women who don't get as many opportunities to make that leap from the really successful, critically acclaimed indie film to sort of a bigger franchise film. Did you feel pressure making that transition? You know, something that men do all the time, but women are not allowed to do as often. And how did you sort of manage that, especially knowing you're going to be tapping into this fan base of DC that has decades of sort of attachment to these characters in these worlds. Sure. I definitely, I mean, there was definitely a lot of pressure, mostly self-imposed, I think, in terms of all of that. But I just kind of took it one step at a time. I mean, honestly, it was so unbelievable to even have gotten an opportunity to pitch it that it was more like, well, this is just a fun experience. Let's just kind of see where this goes. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I didn't, you know, I try not to think about that, right? Being the first or, or or the odds being stacked against me. And I think there was something specific about, and I've said this before too, it's, uh, there was something very specific about the story of Birds of Prey, the team around Birds of Prey, the, the tone, the attitude, what it was about. That felt right for me, even though I, I hadn't watched all the Marvel movies, right? Like there was just something about it that felt like in miraculously like a close or like a close cousin to what, what Dead Pigs was in many ways. And I think, you know, uh, the studio, Margot, um, Christina Hodson, their screenwriter, like, uh, you know, the producers, they all sort of saw that too. So I very much lucked out that they just happened to be writing this kind of oddball feminist uh, (laughs) superhero movie around the same time that I made an oddball, like, kitschy 
you know, indie. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like in a lot of ways, tonally, their Birds of Prey and Dead Pigs are less dissimilar than one might think. Mm -hmm. And you do such a great job of managing tone in both films. How do you find that line when you're starting a scene that starts off comedic and everybody's having a good time and knowing that you've got to come to this sort of horrific endpoint? Where do you find the line of tone as a filmmaker? Yeah, it's a really tough one. I mean, I think anyone can who cracks it or like that's always the goal, right? To crack it. Like as a as a filmmaker that too and it's it's everything. I think it's 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 setting a mood on set. It's working with your actors so that they fully understand the kind of movie that you're making. It's a lot of editing thereafter as well and 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 selection of music and and how you actually put the movie together. But I like to sort of um give the my actors a lot of flexibility and range. And so we tend to, we tend to do a lot of different takes and all each take is very different. And some will be a little more serious. Others will be a little bit like more slapstick. So we actually kind of play around with tone within every scene, which gives me a lot more flexibility in the cutting room in order to figure it out. So it's like, okay, which way do you want to go with, with this particular scene or this particular moment? So that's just kind of how I work, um, which has, has been really helpful because I think I like story that kind of always teeter on the edge between comedy and tragedy. And when you're doing the work in the editing room, because I think that's probably a realm that most people don't talk mm-hmm. about, is, is it like cooking where you're just sort of seasoning to taste? You're like, let's try it this way. Oh, that's a little too much. Like, What is the conversation between you and your editor as you rack focus on exactly what that tone's going to be? Yeah, it's such a specific art form in its own right. And I think a great editor, and I've been lucky enough to work with them, really understand that and like the way that Jay Cassidy worked on um, Birds of Prey was interesting where he would pretty much choose the same take for the whole scene because he felt like instead of like picking like you know these little mini moments he would kind of try to choose a consistent take and he would kind of allow the pacing within the scene that was created that day with the ac- uh, with the actors to be the to dictate the pacing of the scene and sometimes that was great sometimes we need to make quicker or slower or manipulate it a little bit but that was the way that he liked to work where he kind of just like let it speak to him like once he was like this is the take or this is the performance like let's kind of carry that through and then sometimes we would have different versions of the scene so we would cut a scene that's like a lot more devastating and we'll cut a scene that's a bit more slapstick and and we'll have all those in and like sort of in our back pocket so that when we had a better sense of what the movie is you can go back and go like actually we really need this scene to feel more like this or that and then you would you, you know you would sort of be able to go back and draw upon that because they're just infinite 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 ways that you can cut a movie in and you know I just it's it's a lot of that it's a lot of patience um, sometimes something that like frankly studios are not don't have the patience for um, but like you know you, you do what you can um, certainly on Dead Pigs that was a really really long editing process because it's just a, it was a tough movie to crack and there's so many different characters it, it's a longer movie and a lot of it was also finding that tonal balance of like does this feel appropriate or like even if we linger a little longer here does it allow us to do this later when do you know you have that moment when do you know to move on it, just in your own head I always want to feel excited by at least like one take 
<laughs> you know? Um, and then once I feel excited about that one take, I tend to want the next one too, just, just to feel like I really got it covered. So it's like, I, we, we finally nailed it. Let's do one more and just see where we might get. And then, and then yeah. we're good. Yeah. That yeah. feels like a good, that feels like a good strategy. Like one and then just a bonus one that might even be better. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. Like I always find it super interesting to talk to other directors about how they do things because everyone does it so differently and so personally, often because like, how do you learn this except sort of instinctually and just talking to your actors? But that's how I like to do it. I think some other directors are more like, they're good when they're good or they, they'll they say like, here's one for you in a way to an actor. <laughs> I always find that kind of hard because sometimes the actor's like, I'm good. I did one for me. <laughs> um, or... What do you mean? You know, so I just, I tend to, and oftentimes you end up using that take, but I, I like to, I have a few favorites that I've got in the back of my head that I think will work, but you ne- like, I think for me anyway, filmmaking is really kind of allowing a setting, setting the stage to be constantly happily surprised. And so I like to feel that way. I like to feel like excited and surprised by a certain take that I wasn't expecting and then pushing them to do something else that's even more surprising. And oftentimes those are the best moments that you ever find in the movie. And you just know it when you feel, I think you know it when you see it. Hard right turn, but I'm going to use that as a segue. Is there a movie that you resisted watching for whatever reason and then were surprised and amazed by when you finally did? Mm. Like where someone was like dragging you into it and you were like, I don't really want to watch this and then you were like oh my god this was incredible huh I'm trying to think I don't really like horror movies so I think I actually had an aversion to even get out because I didn't like horror movies so much and like everyone's like you will love it like it's not a horror movie and I just don't do horror movies um I just get really queasy but obviously I loved it when I saw it and then the flip of that question is what's a terrible movie that you will defend forever (laughs) <laughs> well, um, this is the like oh, guilty, so guilty pleasure thing, <laughs> but but it, you shouldn't feel guilty about them. Like, what's the one that people are just like, why? And you're like, you're wrong. Oh, so many. Like, I am a huge fan of sort of like the Nick Cage action trifecta, if you will. No one has mentioned these yet, but that's a great answer. This is the this is the first reference to the Nicolas Cage canon, and they belong in this category for sure. Absolutely. Like, I. Like The Rock, I mean, he did, it was like Con Air, The Rock, and Face Off. I don't know exactly the chronology of it, but I know that was the ultimate. I know he he won an Oscar, but I'm just saying, <laughs> nothing beats <laughs> Face Off. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. Pure Cinema, directed by John Woo. Exactly. What's the problem? Yeah. yeah. I want to talk a bit more about Birds of Prey, which if you guys have not seen yet, it's fantastic. I loved it. I feel like you, Kathy, like I am sort of immune to the charms of comic book movies sometimes, but Birds of Prey totally turned that around for me. Thank but you. I think the most striking thing for me was the use of practical sets, practical visual effects, and hand-to-hand combat. It's all done so effectively and really reminded me, you mentioned the Batman films from the 90s. That's what the world that was most evoked to me. Why did you make the decision to emphasize such a tactile sort of real world when so many other comic book films are relying so heavily on the world of CGI? I think because of exactly that, I wanted to try to do something different and fresh, not as necessarily just a pure reaction or passive reaction against it. But also I felt like 
it was a more grounded movie in many ways. The stakes weren't that high. It wasn't about saving the universe or even saving Gotham. It was really about saving this girl. And it was about saving Harley's soul and her finding her soul. And these and it was a much more intimate story in many ways. And I really liked that. It felt more like a crime caper than it really than a big superhero movie. Again, something I liked and appreciated. And so it just felt right to make it much more tactile and practical. And frankly, I had never really worked with VFX before. So it was not necessarily intimidating, but more like, I want to know how this works. Like I want to, I want to see it and understand it and, you know, know that I have it and not like push that off into a realm that I didn't understand as much. And it was such a fun challenge to do it. The final reason was because I really wanted to showcase the physicality of the women themselves, that they were powerful and great fighters because they were great fighters and they were strong and not because all of them just had these crazy powers. Did you ever have any resistance to, you know, so many uh, comic book films, it's about, you know, this moment of saving the world, everything rests on this particular comic book film. Did you guys face any resistance, you and the screenwriter Christina Hodson, to sort of the, I don't want to say small stakes of this story, but it's definitely a more grounded sort of like emotional arc than we're used to seeing in these kinds of films? Not, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think by the time I was hired, that was the movie. And I was pretty clear in my vision too uh, when I was pitching it that I wanted it to be very character based and, and and grounded in that way so you know I think of course like they are like let's make sure there's enough action to appease everybody and and when you have um, almost like basically five protagonists and, and two antagonists as I did in the movie and so little time you are always trying to fight for real estate is like is it going to be lingering in that character moment or <laughs> is it going to be that extra like kick in the balls that you're going to keep so there was definitely debate there um, during post but I think generally the intent of the movie was always the intent of the movie can we talk about the hair tie thing I feel like <laughs> everybody else has <laughs> but I also want to as a man with long hair yeah. I, I think the reason why everyone seemed to respond to it was is that it, it's not a moment that a male, that a guy comes up with, but it was one that literally every woman that I know was just like, yes. Where, so where does that come from? And I feel like there were other moments in the movie that Kate probably recognized that I didn't recognize. I feel like the movie was full of a lot of stuff that I, as a guy, did not even pick up on. That one I did, but I know there are others. And how did you guys think about those moments? Or was it even not a conscious thing because you're just making the movie that you would make? I would say a lot of it was pretty unconscious, to be honest. I think there was this feeling like once I got hired and there were that that many women just on the creative team and we were telling them... We were telling, I think this movie is inextricably about the female experience in a way and what it means to be a woman, um, even in these sort of larger than life characters and situations. And so it just kind of naturally came out of that. And um, the hair tie moment happened like while we were in prep, I think, and Christina had the idea. And I was like, absolutely, I I you know, let's let's do it. There was also such a, I think the tone of the film allowed us to play around with that in a pretty subversive way, in a cheeky way. And so we got away with it in, in a way that I think some other movies couldn't or had to be a little bit more self-serious about it. And we got to like kind of, you know, be the like weird cheeky little sister being like, ha let's do this. So <laughs> that, that, that allowed for a lot of freedom. I mean, there was also Ewan McGregor and I would talk a lot about like just like little passive little 
gigs he would just throw in there you know like when he he would be like do as you're told which was not a, a line that was in the script but he just says and like those little things that it it's I think especially for a woman you when you hear that you're like yep I you know but it's not it's not overt it's not like he's saying something completely vile even like I don't know the egg sandwich when was the last time we got to see like a beautiful movie star really enjoying food in a studio movie like things like that that we don't even really think about the messaging around until you see something that isn't the messaging we're Mm -hmm. used to and you're like oh it doesn't have to be this way like Harley can love the hell out of that egg sandwich Mm -hmm. my personal favorite I think was the uh, pants in the diamonds or girl's best friend montage the choice to put her in pants uh, instead of a skirt was so genius (laughs) can you tell us anything about the continuing adventures of one miss harleen quinzel honestly i don't know i mean everything you know everything's so up in the air right now um she's such a fascinating character and i think what was so fun about this movie was that we got to really play it as if it's through her perspective. So it was kind of like Harley Cam. And I thought that was always what was so interesting about the script was that the form and function of the storytelling was grounded in character and the storyteller's personality. And so I think that was such a fun challenge. And I think there's just so many more layers to who Harley Quinn is that it would, you know, it would certainly be interesting to see her, see more of. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Next up, according to the Wikipedia, you have got an adaptation of Jenny Zhang's Sour Hearts coming from A24. Mm -hmm. What's the process been like making an adaptation with a screenwriter who also wrote the original text? Yeah, that this one is really interesting and super personal and very serendipitous because Jenny wrote the book a few years ago. I had heard about the book independently and bought it and just read it. And it was the first time, I think, actually... Franklin, it's funny that you said, like, when was the last time that you felt like you saw yourself on big screen? I felt like someone took my memories and plopped it into a book. It was so specific to my experience, and which was very weird because of the immigration patterns of contemporary mainland China. There were very few people who left China in the 80s to immigrate to America, even fewer that were sort of of that like grad student ilk. And so I had never actually met anyone, even among all my family friends that had a very similar background to me, which was that I was born in China, moved to the US when I was four, and like lived in the East Coast, and my father was a grad student at the time. Literally never met anyone like me like in that way. And then Jenny comes along and writes a book that is not an autobiography, but is inspired by her experiences. And it turns out that she's pretty much had the same exact background as me. And so that was really weird. And I remember reading the book and feeling so very seen, but also just these like quiet, intimate details that I'm like, what? Like, 
my mother did this or, you know, it, I just never felt that like that before. And then A24 had independently acquired the rights to the book. So just was very, very serendipitous. And we had been, you know, A24 is just the studio that I always admired and wanted to work with. And so that kind of came together like that. So the adaptation is a very loose adaptation, actually. We are calling it Sour Hearts instead of Sour Heart, which is the book. And it's been really great. I mean, I think that Chani is, is, is almost like a sister of mine now, you know, it, so it's become much like how the book itself was a loose adaptation of her memories and feels like memories. We're kind of doing that again, but now we're combining my memories into the screenplay as well. So there are literal scenes and moments and um, characters that are as inspired by my life as Jenny's life or from the book. So it's become its own like weird, weirdly beautiful thing. Final three questions. I have a two-part question and then Kate will ask two questions. So I was lucky enough to work for Sidney Pollack in the year before he died. And and one of the things that he said that blew my mind was that he was only interested in making movies about two subjects because they were the only two subjects that in thousands of years of human history, we had no better understanding now than we did then. And that was love and war, Uh, (laughs) which begets the question, what is your favorite movie about love and what is your favorite movie about war? Mm, That's great. I actually, there's one that kind of fits both, which is interesting. That's a bonus answer. That's a good bonus points. I I don't like saying anything is my favorite because it's like, I can't pick. And then it, it, it gets me nervous. But I'll say a very good movie that I really love is Atonement which is both a war and love movie. It is indeed. There we go. (laughs) You know, we may have answered this question earlier when we were talking about Farewell My Concubine, but can you remember the single image from a movie that has stayed with you the longest? It can be a still frame. It can be a cut. Anything that's really stuck in your brain for many years. Mm, so many. I definitely that one, which is weird. Um, of of just you know you see the the sword go down. That's definitely one for me. I think there's a lot of. I tend to love like evocative and ambiguous images, if you will. Like I love J.K. Simmons' smile at the end of Whiplash. I I love like yeah. It tends to be I think ones where you're still thinking like. Why? What? What was the meaning behind that? What? What? What is that about? I'm guessing the Lost in Translation whisper falls in that category oh, too. Oh yeah, that's so good. Yeah, love that. I love that. I feel like I everyone everyone has their own interpretation of what it can be, and like you can just slow it down and and try to like make it out. And I've never bothered to Google this, but I guess like people who can read lips must know. Hmm. There is a definitive answer. I think it's something like, it's very generic. It's like, I'm here if you need me, is what he says. Like, it's something that you would not expect. It's just very sort of like straightforward. Oh, man. You know, I wish I didn't know that. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, see, you're not like, you go. yeah. But it's, it's all not, about it's, the ambiguity. That's what yeah, makes it work. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I just, I love that because I'm just, I still, you know, you just start, you just keep thinking about it. No, those are the best movie endings. I mean, the one that I think is stuck in my brain is being there, the ending in terms of just like how you want to read that. Mm-hmm. Bringing us into our final question. If you could hold a worldwide screening of one movie simultaneously, everybody on planet Earth gets to watch the same movie at the same time. What movie would you show the people of Earth? Wow. As in like this movie should represent Earth. It can be whatever you would like. It can be this is a great time. This is the movie of all movies or just, hey, I really like this one. The ultimate film programming challenge. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. I, I think something like Mad Max Fury Road for me. I, one, oh, I, that's a good one. Especially right, <laughs> especially right, right? now. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I love that movie. It actually has so much meaning and symbolism. I think it's only become more prescient. I think it's a good warning of where we're headed. And it's a fun time at the same time, because I could say something like stalker, <laughs> but like, <laughs> not sure the whole world has patience yeah. for that. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, Mad Max Fury Road's a really, yeah, that's that's a good one. Thank you. I'm so curious what other people have said. <laughs> it, it varies widely, interestingly. It's everything from, I mean, like uh, My Neighbor Totoro, mm. uh, someone said Back to the Future, uh, Kate and I, we- Breakfast Club, Kate and I weirdly share Do the Right Thing as our oh, sort yeah. of gut answer, which is an interesting one. But yeah, it varies widely, which is why we asked the question. I think it's a really fun way both to talk about movies, but also to recommend movies to people because maybe people will check them out. So if you yes. haven't seen Bad Bass Fury Road, endorsed by Kathy Young. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like desperate for movie lists right now because... It's actually, for me, I think there's a great opportunity because I love old movies and I love rewatchable movies. And you sort of, there's so much content now and it's always hitting you. So you're constantly trying to just keep up with the new stuff. And there's something nice. There's a bit of the silver lining in all of this is like, I'm just watching all these movies that I've had on list that I'm like, oh, I want to rewatch. Like we just, we watched um, Infernal Affairs the other day because we were talking about The Departed and I'm like, I haven't seen Infernal Affairs in like 20 years, you know? So that's been really nice. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time. Thanks so much, Kathy. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you guys. From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of the Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are me, Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Han Sani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Patel composed our theme music, and this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter at Franklin Leonard, at Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Kate is that Hagan girl, girl, G-R-R-L, on both. And we, the Blacklist, are the, T-H-E, B-L-C-K-L-S-T.